0: Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. When I first met Pramila Jayapal a number of years ago, I knew she was someone to watch. She wasn't in Congress. She wasn't even running for Congress at the time, but it was clear that she belonged in Washington. She had a background as an immigrant, an activist, and a state elected official representing her Seattle home that had prepared her to do what needed to be done in Congress, to break the old patterns and to bring a new politics to Washington. So it was no surprise. That when she was elected in 2016, she really did start to change things immediately. Within three years, she has emerged as the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a lead sponsor on Medicare for All legislation, and the embodiment of congressional opposition to Donald Trump. Few members have risen so fast and accomplished so much, so quickly, and there's still so much that she wants to do. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thanks so much for joining us on Next Left.
1: It's so great to be with you, John.
0: I wanted to begin with something that happened in early June. Uh, you took the House gamble as the first South Asian American woman ever to lead the chamber. That was a momentous event for you. Tell us about it.
1: Well, honestly, the reason it was so momentous was because of the issue that I was presiding over. It was part of the rules debate for the Dream and Promise Act. And as you know, I've worked on immigration issues as an activist for so long. I worked really hard on crafting the final piece of legislation through some very difficult times. And then on top of that, to sort of be able to go up and be the first South Asian American woman to preside over the House on that issue just felt like the whole reason for coming to Congress had become so clear. And... For people around the country, as we posted that little video of my walking up and taking the gavel, you know, you really got a sense all over again about how important representation is, not just because of what it means for the futures that people imagine for themselves. Like, I can do this because I see somebody who looks like me there, but also for the voices that it brings into the chamber. And I think that came through with the legislation.
0: And you are an individual who comes from a background that's perhaps very different from a lot of members of Congress. First and foremost, you were were born in India.
1: Yes, that's right. I was. And I think I'm one of only 14 out of 535 members of Congress who are immigrants ourselves, born outside of the country and then naturalized. New Americans, we say. And that's a real honor.
0: So tell me about growing up in India. Was your family political?
1: My family was really not political at all. Other people in my family have been. My, my great aunt on my mother's side was actually the first woman gynecologist in India. She was very well known. She went into villages to really promote reproductive choice for, for women. And she wrote the OBGYN textbook that's still used in, in medical schools today. My uncle on my father's side, who is, I think, the number two person in the labor department in Kerala. So Kerala was a communist-controlled state. Very, very progressive labor laws there. But my parents themselves were not political at all. They really were just about, you know, trying to make a better life, trying to make sure that we had good values. But they weren't political.
0: Kerala is a unique Region of India, as you say, it has radical traditions, and it's also been a place where the circumstance of women has been a front and center political issue and a front front and center effort for a long time. Did did that influence you as a child?
1: Yes, very much so. It's a matrilineal society, so you know that means that name, property, everything goes through the mother's line. That orientation was very clear in the policy approach before even the Socialist Party when the Maharajas were there, very progressive. And those ideas went through into the health system. So Kerala has one of the best public health care systems in the world, actually. It was a model when I was working in public health for its outcomes. It also has extremely high female literacy rates up to 92 93% which was sort of unheard of for women and i think that there was a real emphasis on believing that women were extremely strong and my grandmother would tell me stories about you know the strength of women and and my grandfather was very very committed to making sure that his three daughters all got an excellent education so that was always very very important for us growing up and i think i had this sense that we had a lot to offer and we should follow our dreams.
0: And you started following your dream at a a pretty young age. Am I right that you came to the US at at 16 to go to university?
1: I did. My parents had about $5,000 in their bank account, but then my father went through some very tough times in his employment. And at the time that I was graduating from high school, he had about $5,000 in his bank account. And he really believed in education. And for whatever reason, he believed in the American education system. Most of his colleagues and friends were sending their kids to the UK um, if they could afford to send them anywhere. But my dad, my dad was taken with the idea that in America, anybody could be anything. You know, that American dream story that has gone so far abroad, even though today in the United States, it seems lost for so many people. And so he took, he and my mom decided they were going to take all those savings and they were going to send me to the United States. I was 16 years old. I came by myself and I went to Georgetown University. And um, I, I think I was so aware of the Financial strain on my family and doing what they had done that I don't think I ever allowed myself to really think about how difficult it was or or what failing <laughs> looked like. I I felt a tremendous amount of pressure to sort of be successful um, and deliver, you know, for 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 my parents. But I do remember, you know, all of the things that were so new that. Um, I had never seen snow. I didn't know how to dress. Um, You know, my feet would break out in rashes because I had to wear socks. And I never used to have to wear socks. Um, I didn't know a lot of the phrases. And to this day, even after all this time in the United States, I still get tripped up by some of the old idioms and phrases that people use. And... I couldn't go home because we didn't have any money to go home during the year. And we didn't have enough money for phone calls either. And there was no Skype at the time. So it was all about airgrams. You know, every Sunday I would sit down and write an airgram to my mom and my dad about life in the United States. And my, my mom still has those, actually.
0: You went through Georgetown and then Northwestern. And then you went into finance, into banking. Is that correct?
1: Well, after college, so what happened is my, you know, I was supposed to be an economics major, because if your parents take all their money, and they send you to the United States, you're supposed to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a CEO. That was like my dad's parting words to me, you know, doctor, lawyer, CEO, that's what you have to shoot for. Well, I didn't really like economics that much. I was good at it. I did well in it. But I loved writing and words. And so My sophomore year of college, I used the one phone call I was allowed to have every year back home to call my dad from the dorm phone and tell him that I was going to be an English literature major instead of an economics major. And then I had to hold the phone away from my ear as he screamed at me and said, I didn't send you to the United States to learn how to speak English. You already know how to speak English. And so I promised him sort of as the mea culpa that I would get the same job with an English degree that I would have gotten with an economics degree. I interviewed with investment banks, which were really big at the time. This was 1986. And I got several offers from top investment banks. And I decided to go to Payne-Weber and work in leverage buyouts on Wall Street. I was 20 years old, John. And I learned a tremendous amount about numbers, about finance. I'm very, very proficient in those areas, uh, which has been helpful to me on a whole lot of levels. I don't think people expect me to be. But I also learned I I really didn't like it. And I did not want to do that. And so I didn't know what to do. I went on to get my master's in business at Northwestern University. And it was while I was there that I started to realize, wait a second, I can take the business skills that I'm learning and the passions about what I really care about in the world, and I can put them towards good use. And I met Mary Houghton, who ran Shore Bank, was an early founder of Shore Bank, doing economic development in distressed neighborhoods in South Chicago.
0: One of the most famous projects in, in the United States on, on really trying to do an ethical banking.
1: Correct. And and early, you know, not I mean, that was when it was very early in it's in its nascent stage. Not many people were really thinking about how do you revive distressed communities? What does it mean to go into a community? What is the finance that's necessary? How are people getting uh, screwed, you know, in in uh, their home prices and their everything what's available to them? And so she was fantastic. And she was a great mentor of mine. And um, we ended up setting up an economic development concentration at Kellogg. And that was what then led me to do a summer internship when all my friends were going to work in consulting banks and consulting firms and back to investment banks. I went to Thailand and worked along the borders of Laos and Cambodia doing rural economic development. And that sort of set me on on the path that I really wanted to be on.
0: And then you ended up in Seattle.
1: I did because I had another foray after I graduated, you know, still like the voice of my father over my shoulder, right? Saying, what about business? What about business? And I thought that maybe if I went to work for a company that was doing work on products that really mattered, that maybe that would make a difference. And so I got offered this great job at a Seattle-based company that had just been voted or, you know, ranked as one of the top companies in the country to work for. And it was a heart defibrillator company. And um, they were recruiting MBAs to be in upper management. And to do that, you they had this really unique program where you had to go spend a year in sales. And so they put me in Cincinnati, Ohio. So I moved to Seattle because I loved Seattle, but I ended up getting transferred to Cincinnati, Ohio, where I was the first person of color and the first woman to ever be in that district. And high stakes, you know, the medical equipment business is actually very lucrative for sales reps, tough to get in. They were not happy um, to see me there. Uh, And I did it for a year, just long enough to show them that I could beat all of them in their sales records and drive my little Ford Aerostar van across eastern Indiana and western Ohio with my defibrillators in the back and go to fire departments in eastern Indiana where they'd never seen a person of color before and would say, where are you from? And I'd say, India. And they'd say, we're in Indiana. And I would say, no, no, no. But it was a great experience. And I really learned a lot that I was able to apply to my advocacy work later about how you build bridges with people who are pretty different. And what does it look like in rural communities? And even though we weren't necessarily talking politics, it was an experience that really taught me about the humanity of everybody, the, the sameness of what we really want for ourselves and our lives, and how that is true regardless of the tremendous other differences that might exist in where we were born or where we came from or what we look like. You know, after that medical equipment piece, I started working in the nonprofit world. I was doing international development and working with women in villages in India and Africa um, on public health issues and economic development issues. It was really wonderful. It was about eight years. And as part of that, I went on a fellowship um, to live in India for two years in villages, came back with a child who had been born extremely prematurely, almost died. And it was 9-11, happened soon after that. And I ended up starting what ended up being an organization because we were organizing against the discrimination that initially Arabs, Muslims, and South Asians were facing in the wake of 9-11 being called terrorists, Muslims being detained in the middle of the night, deported. And so I started... Working on some of those outrages turned into an organization which continued to grow and which I led for 11 years that became the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington State, one of the largest in the country.
0: We'll be back after these messages. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine and right now we've got a special deal just for Next Left listeners. You can save over 90% on a digital subscription and get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. You can find it at thenation.com podcasts subscribe. That's thenation.com forward slash podcast subscribe. Every time you support The Nation, it helps us make this podcast. So if you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a subscriber. Now it's time for a word about Joy Reid, the MSNBC political analyst. She talks about how Trump happened this week on our sister podcast at The Nation, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Weiner, the coolest man in L.A. That's Joy Reid on what it will take to beat Trump in 2020 on the Start Making Sense podcast. It's political talk without the boring parts. New episodes every Thursday at thenation.com or wherever you get your episodes. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. At that point, there was not just the discrimination, but also a tremendous amount of ignorance about immigrant communities. Yes. And the group that you started as Hate Free Zone.
1: That's right. Mm -hmm. Really
0: sought to bring together people from a lot of different communities. It did a lot of education in Seattle and I think in many ways helped Seattle to to become an outpost for perhaps a better understanding.
1: I mean, what I realized early on is you know, initially it was around Arabs, Muslims, and South Asians, but then we heard about the Latino community and we heard about the API community and all of the challenges. And it became clear to me that taking on government policy, and at that time, very few electeds wanted to stand with us and say, we should have due process because it was all in the frame of terrorism and national security. And there was this idea that you were being unpatriotic if you questioned the government around these policies that were violating civil rights and civil liberties for all of these communities. And if we were going to take on a battle like that, it had to be a big coalition. So we did some of the earliest organizing, both in ethnic communities that had never organized before. There were no Somali organizations at the time in the United States. We were also able to bring in labor. In 2003, I led the Immigrant Workers Freedom Ride Coalition from from Seattle, um, with the head of the King County Labor Council, who I'm very happy to say is is my husband now, but that was not the case at the time. But you know, really important moment for immigrant rights and the labor community coming out after being sort of anti-immigrant and closed until 2000. That was the beginning of labor really showing open support for immigration reform. And so we were able to tie a lot of these things together and build that larger coalition and build the base that I think has made Seattle so progressive on a whole set of issues, including immigrant rights. We passed the first ever, one of the first sanctuary city ordinances, as they're called now. We called it a don't ask ordinance back then. In the Seattle City Council, we established an Office of Immigrant and Refugee Rights, But we also started building the base for paid family leave for $15 minimum wage and for so much else that we, you know, that we ended up doing.
0: So it was almost natural at some point that because you were on boards, you were on commissions, you were helping to organize on the $15 wage and doing all these things that you would think about getting into politics. Was it in 2014 that you made your first race?
1: It was. And you know, I wasn't on that many boards and commissions because I was considered sort of a radical person. <laughs> um, we had done so much organizing and so much pushing of elected officials that I wasn't necessarily the first person that they turned to.
0: You were a troublemaker.
1: <laughs> I was a bit of a trick, good, good, trouble, trouble, good as, trouble, as John Lewis likes to say. But I was appointed to the fifteen-dollar board, and I and I we did a huge organizing effort with the governor in 2008 around New Americans, So I was on that, you know, New Americans Policy Council. But I generally was fairly skeptical of people in office. But I had this brainwave one day watching the people who were running for a, a couple of particular races that I was thinking about it the wrong way, perhaps. And that instead of thinking about it as elected office separate from organizing, we should really be thinking about elected office as just another platform for organizing. And that if we could get organizers into elected office, that we would start to change what was expected and delivered from government. And that by not doing that, we were actually seeding this incredible organizing opportunity. And so it was a whole theory of change that I had. I had no idea if it was possible or how to go about it, but I decided I would just run for the state Senate and try. And so that was a test. And I saw, yeah, this is possible. But I knew that really for me and the issues I was working on, the the Congress was perhaps a really great place to do that.
0: And... You moved quickly because uh, you were elected to the state Senate in 14, and then after doing a lot in the Senate and becoming a very high-profile member, suddenly the veteran congressman from Seattle, Jim McDermott, decided uh, to step down. And your campaign in 2016 uh, really, I think in many ways, anticipated some of what we saw in 2018, where people who were coming from activist organizer backgrounds... Sometimes elbowed their way into a position where they could could run. They weren't always welcomed, but it was this notion of an urgent new politics. And and I, I really see your 2016 race as as a, a groundbreaking campaign in many senses.
1: Thank you. I I feel like in some ways because Trump won, it we, we never got to celebrate <laughs> celebrate some of it, but the. But the tactics and the strategy were just as important to me as what the outcome was. And so, you know, just saying we're not going to run a traditional kind of campaign, we're not taking corporate PAC money, we're going to run a DOORS campaign, a field campaign. I also, before I ran for Congress, I had endorsed Bernie Sanders. I was the first state elected official to endorse Bernie. And I endorsed Bernie because... I was running on the same, many of the same issues he was running on. And I saw his consistency and I was excited by his boldness. And people told me I was crazy. I was not running for an office, higher office at the time, but I thought it was a really important moment and campaign. And I wanted to be, you know, right there fighting for those things. It ended up being a great decision when I decided to run for Congress because he made me and Zephyr Teachout from New York and Lucy Flores from Arizona, the first three candidates that he endorsed for Congress. And I think that was also very, very helpful to the campaign. He was incredibly helpful to my campaign.
0: Well, and and you, I would argue, were helpful to his campaign because at, well, obviously, an initial endorsement, but also at a critical stage when um, the Sanders campaign was coming under pressure to to open up more, to talk more about issues of race and gender. You wrote some some very important uh, commentaries, which which I think were taken seriously by the campaign as as Sanders and others tried to expand their message.
1: Yes, I had not endorsed him. This was in August, I think, August or September sanders came out to do a rally with us i was speaking at it as well around the social security and medicare anniversary but a few days before that rally his team called me and said the senator was going to do a rally for his presidential campaign at the UW that night and would i introduce him or be one of the people that introduced him on stage And I said, you know, I would think about that and I would probably love to do it, but I wanted them to know I had not endorsed him at that point. And they were so taken aback and they said, why not? And I said, because I really would like to see what his platform is on racial equity, on gender and on guns, three issues that I felt I needed more information before I was going to endorse him. And they called me back the day before the rally and said, the senator would like you to introduce him anyway. He understands that you haven't endorsed him. And would you be willing to sit down with him for a one-on-one meeting to talk about your concerns? I said, of course. So that was scheduled for after the rally. And I came off the stage and he was the next speaker, gave me a big hug, you know, said something like, you said everything I was going to say, got up on stage crowd was very excited to see him, a huge crowd, 5,000, 6,000 people, I think. And he was interrupted by folks from the Black Lives Matter movement who took over the microphone and the stage and really challenged the whole notion of you know whether or not he had a racial equity platform and shut it down. And he actually did not get to speak. And it was a difficult moment for everybody there. But certainly up on, you know, up at the front, I could see what was happening, that this was a supposedly progressive community. And everyone was being very divided. And there was some very nasty stuff coming from a lot of the Caucasian folks who were there who felt like, why were black folks protesting a progressive white candidate, and that it was totally inappropriate to shut it down. So it was it was nasty. And I wrote a piece I couldn't sleep that night. I wrote a piece that The Nation published that was really trying to make a case for why this was a really important moment and why we had to talk about racial justice in the context of progressive politics and why Bernie Sanders had a very important role to play in that. Before that and after the rally, I met with Bernie and Jane, his wife, and we had a really fantastic conversation though I will say that he was naturally, I think, extremely upset about what had happened and felt that he wasn't being given the credit that he needed. Talked to me about the fact that he was putting together a racial equity platform and it was in the works and could I, you know, would I be helpful on that? And I said, of course I would. And that I thought he brought a really incredibly unique voice to the table. And so I did introduce him that night I told him some things that I thought he really needed to emphasize. He took them in and he said them at the rally and he said them believing them, not just, you know, I think he did kind of, that was a turning point moment. I don't know if he would describe it that way, but I feel like it was. And he came out with his racial equity platform shortly after that. And it took me several more months to endorse him. I think it took me maybe another two months of back and forth with him, with this campaign To endorse him but when i did i went in wholeheartedly and very very impressed with his his trueness to wanting to address these issues but perhaps not having the fluency and not having had to do it as the senator from a very very white small state in a very different part of the country
0: and this is your organizer side this is your activist side In politics, bringing it into electoral politics. And as it turned out, Bernie Sanders did not become the Democratic nominee or the president. But you got elected to Congress and you arrived, you know, were sworn in a couple of weeks before Donald Trump became president of the United States. And one of the most striking things uh, was that here you are settling into Congress, literally a new member, and then Trump does the Muslim ban. And you really threw yourself into that struggle.
1: Yes, I knew it very well. It wasn't actually the first Muslim ban was was back after 2001. I knew all the players. I knew exactly the minute I heard about it. I knew I had to take action and I needed to use my new role to do that. Headed straight to the airport, you know, called up all my activist friends and said, we need people out here. Uh, we have to protest this. We have to stop it had to threaten to shut down the airport if they wouldn't let me go talk to the CBP people, you know, was able to stop working with Northwest Immigrant Rights Project attorneys, pro bono attorneys from different firms, the ACLU were able to stop some families from being put on the plane and deported, but also, you know, able to generate enormous numbers of people holding welcoming signs and really calling out the values that we should be having in protesting this discriminatory ban.
0: When you say threatened to close down the airport, there was a point where you were saying you needed to get through the, I guess, the TSA security or some. Right. Something. And they were saying, no, you can't. And you said, well, I'm I'm going to create an incident here.
1: Yes. I told them that I was a member of Congress all of two weeks or something at that point. But I said I was a member of Congress. I had a right to go and talk to the CBP officials. The CBP officials were not coming to talk to me. And that if they didn't let me go through, then I would have to just go through. And they said, well, it will set off an alarm. And I said, well, I really don't want to do that. And so I think you either have to let me through or I'm going to set off the alarm. And they, they, um, they, they agreed to let us through and several of us. And we got Senator Murray on the phone and we challenged the CBP folks who were in charge there. And as we were there, the lawyers had also been working on a temporary injunction, which came through right as we were there. And that is how we were then able to stop the plane as it was on the runway, getting ready to take off from deporting some of the folks that were on the plane.
0: Congresswoman Jayapal, that's a remarkable story of how a member of the House can be both an elected official and an activist. I'm interested, one of the things that you put a big emphasis on is culture, and making sure that we don't just think about people from a policy or statistical standpoint, we also understand them uh, by the movies they like, the books they read, the music they listen to. Tell me, what's some of the music you've been listening to?
1: Oh, yeah, I love music. And I have a lot of old favorites, you know, Stevie Wonder and some amazing Earth, Wind of Fire. But I also have a 22-year-old who is a musician and has been really keeping me right in the thick of, you know, current um, music that really reflects social justice and also features folks of color. And so, you know, incredible artists like Melanie Charles, who does really remarkable jazz and Bad Bunny a wonderful Puerto Rican artist named Mima. Some of these folks are just doing such amazing music. And because of how music can get out there, you know, you don't have to be on a major label. And all of these folks are bringing voices from the ground and beautiful music at the same time. So that's my little quick playlist of what we were listening to as I drove my 22-year-old partway across the country after they graduated from college.
0: That is a great playlist. Congresswoman Jayapal, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Next Left.
1: Thank you, John, for all you do.
0: Join us next week as we take the Next Left with Sarah Godlewski, a remarkable activist who took on the political power elites of Wisconsin to save the office of state treasurer and then turned around and won that office in the 2018 election. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner-Devoy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vanden Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out on avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. Recording help this week by Eileish O'Neill. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts.